Well, Anthem friends, wow. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them open to the book of Malachi. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to bring up on stage uh, our directors, Alec and Britt, just because I want to make sure we, uh, I'm sorry, and our staff uh, and, and Jay up on stage. And Justin, uh, you too. Uh, just so I want to make sure you guys understand who's, uh, who we are so that you, if you guys have questions throughout the summer and you want to talk to people, you know, we'll make ourselves available to meet with you guys one-on-one um, as much as possible. But so just w- want to be clear here. So I'm Doug. I'm the college pastor and uh, kind of the young adult pastor here at First Orlando. Um, I actually, I was telling Britt and Alec about this. I was interviewing for this job a year ago today. I was at the Mall of Millennia interviewing for this job. So, um, yeah, it went well. I got the job. Just, I, I know, that was spoiler alert. So, um, but... Uh, so I'm the college pastor, and my, I'm also the UCF campus director, so I help direct all the life group, uh, life group activities, special events, and leadership development for everyone at UCF ministry, along with a number of our, like I mentioned, our kind of 12 leaders who are there. Um, I want to introduce, I said this earlier, but this is Alec Brockell. Alec is the director of our Valencia campus ministries um, and just does an incredible job. Alec, UCF is meeting Mondays, 7 p.m. at the Curls House. So if you're someone who lives on the east side of town or you live near UCF, Valencia East, and you want to go, come find me afterwards or go find David Brush or go find the Curls. We'd love to get you that information. You can always find all of our information at First Orlando on Facebook and Instagram. But Alec, tell us about what's going on now at Valencia this, this summer. Heard, heard. So for those of you who have been in Valencia ministry this past, uh, well, first of all, let me say this. By Valencia ministry, I mean that we love community college students. That doesn't mean that you have to be attending Valencia right now. If you're working, if you're not in college, you are welcome to hang out with us. We're just a bunch of misfits who love Jesus, all right? Right. Now that said, if you were here last semester, you know that we had two main life groups, Windermere and Hunter's Creek. Well, this summer we're going to be a big conglomerate. We're taking over. And we're going to have one big party every Tuesday night at 6.30 at Charlie's house. Raise your hand, Charlie. That's Charlie. His parents have been gracious enough to allow us to hang out there until, um, until we're, we're finished every Tuesday night. And so um, if you're looking for a place to hang out, if you're looking to make some friends this summer, um, even if you're just here for the summer, come hang out with us. You don't have to go to Valencia. I'd love to meet you. Come connect with me, and I'll give you my number, and I'll give you the address. All right? Yeah. Awesome. So that's Valencia Britt. Now, Britt is our uh, other director, so we have three directors. Britt leads Disney ministry. We mentioned what's going on at Disney this summer, but is there anything else you want to say just about Disney ministry or anything like that? Yeah, so we used to meet in Magic Kingdom, and for this summer, and somewhat permanently until we may change um, again, I don't know. But we're meeting in Epcot, and that's going to be Mondays and Wednesdays at 7. Um, if you guys are on Facebook, even if you can't go to Disney, if you just want to keep up with updates or whatever, on Facebook, if you search Disney Parks Life Group on your Facebook, you should find a group that has about 700 people in it and just join that group. And that's where all the updates will be for Life Group. Um, we update on there every Monday, every Wednesday, every Thursday for Anthem, for rides and things like that. But yeah, we're in Epcot Mondays and Wednesdays, 7 to 9, ride a ride together. Um, even if, you, if you're not a CP and you have a pass, right. come. Because we would love to have you. It doesn't matter if you're working at Universal and you have a Disney Pass, come. It doesn't matter if you're at another college and you have a Disney Pass, come. We would love to have you. So if you guys have any questions, find me after. 
Awesome. Now, it just, just Alec mentioned this, Bray mentioned this. It's part of the DNA of our college ministry, and it's, it's really this. We don't ask the question so much, who is like me? We ask the question, who has a heart to reach people like me? And so whether you go to Valencia or not, if you have a heart to reach Valencia students, come hang out at Valencia over the summer. If you go to UCF or not, if you have a heart to reach UCF students in the east side of town, come hang out with us this summer. If you have a heart to reach Disney students and you're willing to get a pass, come hang out with Britt and Jay this summer uh, as we go and try to, to really reach people for the gospel uh, at Disney, okay? So just want to make that clear. And we'll make all that information available on our social media channels and in our text exchange. Uh, can you all throw out the text exchange number there? Hey, if you want all the updates sent to your phone this summer, you can reach us at whatever's going to come up on the screen. There it is. Uh, you can text college. To this number, 407-871-6030, there we go, that's better. So text college to this number, we'll send you updates. Um, as people start to do like uh, unscripted parties and stuff like that, if we think it's worthy, we'll text everybody about it. Um, if you've ever, I'm sorry, there's no spam, there's no spam involved. It's just we're trying to get you guys information as quickly as possible. If you've ever seen the Fast and the Furious franchise films where all of a sudden everyone shows up and there's a car race, it's because they use this tech software. So we said if it's, if it's good enough for Dom Toretto, it's good enough for all of us, right? So there you go. That's, that's the way that works. Hey, Justin, anything you want to say about worship team or about things for the summer? Yeah, I mean, if you feel like you have a call to lead, feel free to come find me, Clarence, uh, Oswaldo. Jay, feel free. We would love to have you guys. We'd love to have you audition. So, cool. Yeah, especially if you're a drummer. We love drummers, right? And bass, Jay, players. And bass players. Jay, anything you want to say? Jay actually runs Anthem. So Jay puts all of this on. She's the producer of this event, outside, inside, volunteers. Anything you want to say about Anthem? Nothing? Thanks for coming. Hold on. Thanks for coming. Yeah, there you go. Jay, thanks for coming. All right. Hey, this is our staff. Get to know our smiling faces. We will take you out for coffee this summer. We will meet one-on-one -on -one with you guys because we believe, and if you know the answer, you can fill it in. One-on-one -on -one is how it's done. And so we want to meet with you guys. So come test us. We'll take you out for coffee. We took all of the seniors out for coffee their last day of camp. We spent, like, way too much money taking them to coffee, but it was totally worth it because we love the seniors. I'm sorry. No, That's the last time I'm going to call you seniors. We love the, the freshmen. We love the college freshmen, right? There we go. Okay. Hey, I want to thank you guys for a lot of our extended informational section here at the Extended Brochure. Um, we didn't start early because we had a lot of information. We started early because uh, we just felt like it, there was a need to maybe move a little earlier in the, um, in the day to kind of kick off Anthem. So we're, start, we're going to 7.30 this summer, and I think it's going to really work. It's kicking off summer. We've got all these new people. That's why I wanted to make sure we t uh, took the appropriate time to let you know who we are so if you're new here, we want you to immediately feel like family. We, we want you to be knit in. We want you to be part of what we do because, man, we want to link arms with you and go chase after everything that God wants for us. And so we're willing to take a little bit of time because we're family, we're community, and, and we just felt like it was appropriate. So thank you guys for, for laboring through all of that information with us and, and hopefully sign up for our text exchange and looking at things. That's super great. Hey. If you have Bibles or phones, hopefully they're open to the book of Malachi. We're starting chapter 1, verse 1, because for the next nine weeks, we are going verse by verse through Malachi. And we picked an unusual title uh, for this summer series. Um, and this, the, the title for the ser sermon series is called The F Word. Uh, in fact, we have the graphic for it. Yeah, The F Word. And it's not the F Word you're thinking of. Um, there was a, an article by an economist in the Orlando Sentinel about two months ago. 
and uh, it's an econo economy, uh, economics professor at Valencia, and he said that one of the things he does with his sons is he, he trains them early on to not say the F word. And he says, the F word I'm talking about here is fairness. He said, we don't say the word, the F word in my family because life is not fair. And so sitting around complaining about all the time saying that's not fair doesn't actually help the situation. It just keeps you spinning in whatever problem you're in. It doesn't move towards a solution. And so he said he just abolished the word in his house. His sons weren't able to say that, and that's how he helped uh, raise them to be the, the young men that they, they were. And I, I thought about this as we were thinking through uh, the sermon series for the summer. One of the things that we've been praying about as a staff especially with our counseling load, as we're meeting with y'all, as we're leading life groups, as we're really helping people in prayer requests and walk through challenges in their lives, we've noticed over and over again, the word we hear most often come out of y'all's mouths is the word fair. And it's really more of asked in a question where we go, oh man, I can't believe it, man, it just doesn't seem like life is fair. Why is it not fair? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? There seems to be so much injustice in the world, and it doesn't seem fair. And we just, just to mention a few of these things, we've heard college students talk about things like the Dakota Access Pipeline. And does that seem fair? Does it seem fair uh, the way that we're dealing with some of our natural resources and people's lands and displacement? Some of you are very passionate about one side of the issue, and some of you are very passionate about the other side of the issue. But no matter where you stand on that issue, or even if you're aware of it, the issue of fairness and injustice comes up. And we hear people talk about it. Maybe on another note, you're someone who talks about the idea of human trafficking, right? It just doesn't seem fair that all these children, women in the world are forced uh, into sex trafficking because they don't have equal access to resources or opportunities. And it just doesn't seem fair. Where is God in the midst of all of this inequality? Or maybe uh, you're just talking about inequality in general, racial inequality, financial, economic, social inequality, inequality of rights and things like that. And, and as those thoughts come up in conversations, there's always the subtext of that question right there, right? How does this seem fair? And so I want to begin to address this issue here today. Now, I don't, I don't aim for us to answer all the, 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 the answers to the questions, but I want to at least start the conversation and I want us to turn to Scripture, to an ancient source, to the Old Testament, to see what Malachi has to say about this issue of fairness. Because Malachi is dealing with a context much like ours today, where there are all these conversations and discussions about inequalities uh, and fairness. And he has some very prophetic words to say to the people of God from the Word of God um, about this subject. And I think his answers on the back end of answering that question, are going to be the ones that help us be satisfied in who Jesus is and move forward in a productive way. And so we get, as we get ready to jump into Malachi, I want to invite you to pray with me once more, and we'll just ask God to make us teachable here this evening. Here we go. Jesus, um, life isn't fair, and, and that's a reality. Um, but if we don't have any kind of conceptual awareness of this, we're likely to spin our wheels and to do nothing. And so we want to do something to be a part of the change we need to see in the world. Um, and so I ask that you would use the book of Malachi uh, to teach us about this subject of fairness in a way that doesn't keep us just spinning on the sidelines, but actually moves us into being agents of change for your glory and for the good of the people in the church and for the good of the people outside the church so that the people outside the church can become people inside the church for your glory and for their good and for their eternal good. And Jesus, we ask all of this in your name, in your precious name. 
Amen. Amen. Malachi chapter 1. I'm reading in the English Standard Version. Verse 1 says this, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So let's stop there and camp out. Malachi is a prophetic book. And if you're unaware of what it means to be a prophet, a prophet is somebody who speaks to the people on behalf of God. A prophet goes to God and says, God, what do you want to say? And God says, say this to the people. And you go to the people and you say, hey, people, listen up. God says this. That's what a prophet does. A priest, just, just for uh, awareness, a priest is the inverse of that. A, a priest goes to the people and go, hey, what's your complaint? What are you upset about? Okay, I'll go to God and talk about it. And so the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, talks to God, and pleads before God on behalf of the people. Malachi is a prophet. His direction is this way. He's talking to God. He hears what God says. Oftentimes the people stop listening to God. They stop obeying God. They turn their hearts and their minds away. So God gets a prophet, raises him up, and says, go speak to the people, get their attention, tell them to knock it off. Right? And this is what Malachi is doing. He's got an oracle. He's got a word from God. He's delivering it to a particular people. This is the people. It's Israel. And let's talk about what's going on here at this time period and who Israel is and where they are in the story. As you guys may know if you've read the Old Testament, uh, Israel is this group of people um, who have been called uh, uh, by God's grace into a covenant relationship with Yahweh, the creator, sustainer, God of the universe. And they have this covenant relationship, and at some point in the narrative, they make their way into Egypt, and they are all, all of them living in Egypt, and they fall under the oppression of the pharaohs. And God raises up this prophet named Moses to go and speak to the people and to lead the people out of Egypt into the wilderness and into the promised land. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, the Prince of Egypt, this is a fictionalized version of this account in the book of Exodus. So all these people are leaving mass, le mass exodus out of Egypt. They're going into the promised land. They spend 40 years wandering in the desert, building up their survival skills and their endurance. And then they make their way into the promised land. And when they get into the promised land, they do something really amazing. They set up the first HOA, right? They partition off all of Israel. All of them have their own plots. You know, Reuben has a plot. Issachar has a plot, right? The 12 tribes, the 12 families of Israel, they all get their plots of land. They divide up Israel equally, and they all camp there. Their whole families camp there, and they grow up there. It's this family land system, much like we had in Orlando back in the day, right? Where just groups of families own much of the citrus grove uh, a land in the area, and it just kind of grew up that way. And that's how Israel was. They're in the first HOA. Everyone has their own little suburban reality, and that's the way Israel works. Well, at some point, you know, families, they start to fight. And so you have the northern tribes and the southern tribes. They get into a little bit of an HOA disagreement, uh, probably over irrigation controls and, you know, whether they could build a pergola in the backyard and all these things or whatever the equivalents were in, uh, in the Old Testament. And so the northern tribes separate from the southern tribes, and they're somewhat at kind of a cold war together. you got the ten families and the two families, and they're just going at each other a little bit. And there's a lot of chaos going on. No one's really doing what's right at that time period. They, they try to uh, build a, a, a kingdom structure so that a king can be an authority to kind of make them do what's right. The king is not able to make them do what's right because government never works that way. Because it imposes things from the outside on people. Just never 
changes the human heart, and that was the issue there. And so um, at some point, there was a northern uh, country um, named Assyria. Assyria comes in, and it takes out the, the, the ten tribes in the north, just takes them away, comes in and just deports them, right? So just imagine in a neighborhood, your neighborhood, maybe the neighborhood you grew up in, imagine if the vast majority of the families just disappeared, and there were just these empty homes everywhere, like, it would be like a creepy ghost town, right? It would be like October. It's Halloween. You're like, this is super creepy. And that's what was going on there. It's very unstable and creepy. Just everyone's gone. But the southern kingdom is like, ha, we're the right kingdom. We were righteous. Yay. But they're still not following God. And so God allows the Babylonians to come and take the southern kingdom away. And he deports all these uh, the, the Babylonians come and take, takes the southern kingdom, all the people, and marches them into Babylon where they're in captivity. And now there's just this neighborhood that's empty called Israel. No homes. Well, you know that there are knuckleheads around the neighborhood, right? And they're like, hey, everybody's gone. And it's like the premise of Home Alone, right? The robbers come in, and they're deciding to just go and steal everything from all the homes. And there's pillaging going on. It just becomes this desolate, wild, wild west situation here. Just outlaws and in-laws and all this stuff are just there. They're, they're, they're moving on the place. It's just unstable. There's no kingdom. There's no political system. There's no authority. It's just a free-for-all. And that's the situation of Israel in the time that Malachi comes to speak into that situation. And as God would have it in his providence, God sends this man named Ezra into Israel. And Ezra's a priest, and he brings with him the law, the Old Testament. He brings it and says, guys, we've got to organize around the Old Testament here. We've got to organize around God's truth. And so he begins to establish uh, the semblance of a religious church system there in Israel to help them reclaim what was lost and then God in his providence decides to help fortify the religious revival going on in Israel. He sends this man named Nehemiah who comes from Persia at the time. And he brings all of this uh, uh, knowledge and he brings all his materials. And he begins to build the first uh, wall in, in Jerusalem. And so there's a picture we have here of, of the, old, the old wall. This is uh, what's currently there. Uh, in, in, in ancient times, cities would actually... Uh, they wouldn't have invisible boundaries around the city. They would actually build physical boundaries. And so they build giant wall systems to keep the city intact, to keep invaders out. And the wall would actually act as a, um, as a protection of sorts to, to stabilize everything on the interior. It was almost an authority to keep things in place so that religious officials and political officials could maintain a consistent economy and a political system. Um, interesting of note. Um, my 13th anniversary, this is a little sidebar here, my 13th anniversary is Monday. So Nellie and I have been married 13 years. Thank you, thank you. And, um, and I took my wife to Canada at Epcot, right? Which is, yeah, it's not so much fun after the, uh, after the pause, right? You're like, Canada, oh, at Epcot, oh, okay, well, whatever. Anyway, but we went to Canada on our anniversary or on our honeymoon, and so I was like, hey, for 13 years I'm taking you back to Canada at Epcot, and um, Nellie had much of the, no, Nellie was totally excited about that. Uh, you know, we went to the little uh, Canada Steakhouse there, Le Cellier, and got a steak, and then we went to ride on Test Track, and it was really cool. But Natalie, at some point while we were in Canada, she said, let's go see the Canada film. There's like this film that you can watch in Epcot. You guys, how many of you have seen the film? Okay, see, I didn't know that existed, and I was like, this is the most random thing at Disney. But it's like narrated by Martin Short, and it's in 360, it's very Canadian, um, they just talk about hockey the whole time and apologize for foreign conflict. It's very funny. Um, anyway, so uh, some of you are like, I'm from Canada. That was rude, eh? 
Um, so uh, so you're, I'm, we're in this thing uh, in Canada, and Martin Short mentioned something that I, I had not known before, and I, I looked it up, and it was true. Quebec City is the only walled city in North America. Did you guys know that? It's a French province when it was built, and so they built it in the old style. And so there's, a, there's still the semblance of a wall city around there. And so um, if you look at it, it's got that same idea here that when French, uh, when the French exploration took place in North America and Canada, they said, hey, let's protect this place. Let's build a wall around it so that we can create a stable environment within for, again, for government and for economy and for, for all those things. And that's the idea that's going on here in the Old Testament is they say, hey, let's build a wall around this space, let's stabilize everything because it's unstable, and then when we start to create this religious revival, we can secure, we can make sure it's consistent, consistently applied, make sure it's equitable and fair and just. Well, Nehemiah comes over the first wave, and he starts to build the wall, and he runs into some opposition. People are still invading, and there are all these things going on there. And in between his first visit and his second visit, just things aren't going the way they should. And so God raises up Malachi, and he says, listen, I want you to go into the city. There's a little bit of a wall structure there. I want you to go into this city, probably about 500 B.C., and I want you to tell the people exactly what I tell you. Because the people in the city have just enough religion, just enough Old Testament to be aware that things aren't fair, that there is an absolute truth out there, that people are not living up to that absolute truth. They have just enough religion to know that things aren't fair, but they don't have so much religion, so much awareness of who Yahweh is to be able to apply that consistently. And so in between those two extremes, they're just complaining all the time. They're just like, oh, this isn't fair, and why is this going on, and woe is me, and they're just whining all the time. And they're not turning their eyes to God so that they can be saved. They're just in this misery. And so God, in his mercy and his grace, sends Malachi in to the, in the midst of this wild, wild west situation with a partially built wall and still a destabilized-ish kind of situation, and he says, speak these words. And that's Malachi 1, verse 1. That's what we're to understand. This is what's happening. Everything we say after this point, this is the context of what is going on. And so we get to verse 2. And Malachi says this. He's quoting Yahweh. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, you are responding. As God says, I love you. Here's your response. I'm anticipating your response, Israel, people of God, church, but you say, how have you loved us? And you can, you can read into this answer. God says, I love you. And they say, well, how have you loved us? Now, some of you may be romantically uh, kind of interested and you have a significant other, right? Um, I want you to imagine all of the worst things you can say to someone who tells you I love you for the first time. And just think about, how, just play this out in your mind. You know, there's the moment you look at each other. You start playing boys to men, right? Just put it on. And you're looking deep into one another's eyes, and the other person, you know, your significant other says to you, I love you, right? There's some trembling going on in the voice, I love you, right? Because it's the first time it utters out of your mouth, and you say, how have you loved me, right? <laughs> how does that play out? That's a slap or a car door shut or a don't ever call me again or I'm going on a date with your best friend. That's how that's playing out, right? <laughs> Nothing good happens from that, Right? How have you loved me is not an appropriate response. But it reveals something in the heart of Israel and the people of God. Here's what it reveals. 
it reveals that they are somewhere in the, the depths of them asking this question or thinking, this is not fair. This is not a fair situation. So you tell me you love me, and I'm coming back at you with like, hey, buddy, this isn't fair. How have you loved us? What I'm dealing with right now is completely unfair, and I can't believe you would come in here with all that love mess, right? This is a strong response. How have you loved us? And then he says, or, and they continue, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Uh, or God says this, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill, uh, his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So here's how God responds, right? Let's just play this back, right? I love you, right? I love you. How have you loved us? And then the response is like, what, 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 girl, what, what, right? You can just tell God is like, whoa, where's the self-righteousness coming in? He says, okay, 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 here we go. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. And I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. Mic drop, right? Walk off. That's his response. What in the world is going on here? I don't speak Hebrew. This seems to be an idiom. I don't understand because I can't conceive of a scenario in which two lovers would have that conversation, right? It just seems preposterous. What's going on here? What's going on here? The question uh, that, that God is asking is in response to this assumption where the people are saying, how have you loved us? This seems unfair. And God is now responding to this accusation of unfairness by saying this. Listen, you who wants to talk about fairness. I'm God. And there are these two brothers, Isaac and Jacob. And you know what? I chose to love Isaac and I hated Jacob, and that's my prerogative as God. Let me remind you who I am. I'm God. I do what I want. Now, this isn't him being a jerk. This is him saying, remember who you're talking to here. I'm God. If I want to love somebody and hate another person, it's my prerogative. I created everything. It's what I get to do. You don't talk in such a disrespectful tone back to God. Now, as soon as I say that, all of us in here, probably, each and every one of us, thinks, that is just a load of malarkey. Something seems really off about this, right? God seems to be responding in a really spiteful, arrogant, jerkish kind of tone here, right? If God was a boyfriend and that happened, I would be done with him, right? This just doesn't seem right. And this is the point of the text, Malachi is writing this because he knows that as soon as God defines who God is, the response in every human heart is begin to, it begins to say the same thing, which is this. If this is the kind of God you are, I want no kind of God like that because that doesn't seem fair. Not only does my situation seem unfair, but your response indicates a tone in which I don't think is fair. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Anytime we tell God that how he acts and how he is seems unfair, here's what we're saying. Here's what we're saying. It's going to be on your screen. It's in your bulletin. When we complain of unfairness to God, we are essentially telling him we want to be God. Because that's the reaction in every one of our hearts. When, when God says, I love you, and you go, how have you loved us? What you're saying is, you've not loved us. This is unfair. You are unfit to be God. Your standard doesn't seem consistent there, Lord, and I think I could do a better job than that. And I'm telling you this because I know I could do a better job. I wouldn't hate Esau. I'd love them both. Obviously, you don't know what tolerance is. Good day, right? And that's the response we give to God. 
and, and, and I'll, I'll prove this. This is, this is a preposterous way to deal with things. But if we're honest, I think each of us acts this way towards God. When something seems unfair, oftentimes, our first reaction, our instinct is to go, this isn't fair, I couldn't follow a God that's unfair like this, I'm just going on my own, right? You got friends there that way, you ask them, hey, you know, you grew up in church, I know at some point you made a profession of faith, why aren't you following God? Well, I had this really tough period in my life, and it was, it was, it went through some suffering, and it just seemed unfair, and I just don't think I could serve a God who allows suffering to happen. And although that's heartbreaking, at the core of what that person is saying to us is, because life is unfair, God seems to be the one who governs over this unfairness. Therefore, I can't follow a God who governs over this unfairness. So therefore, I'd rather be God of my life. That's what that reaction is. If you're saying it doesn't seem fair to God, implicitly what's going on in your heart is you're creating an idol factory. You are a bad God, therefore, I'll drive my life. And this I find to be a really interesting reaction, and it's, it's, it's prevalent with every uh, human society. Human beings tend to, to, to issue this argument over and over and over and over and over again, and Malachi is addressing it here. But I just want you to know something. At, at no other relationship level, especially with other humans, do we ever respond in the same way. For example, if you're at work and your boss just arbitrarily decides to fire somebody or dock someone pay, at no point are you like, oh, this is a terrible boss. Man, I can't believe he would be so arbitrary in his application of justice. I'm going to go be boss now, right? I'm just going to take over. Tomorrow when I show up, I'm boss of this situation. I'm just going to tell my boss, you're done here. I'll be boss of this situation. No, what do we do? We're like, oh, man, that's terrible. I hate this job. It's miserable. So what are my hours for next week? Are the, is, it, is it 40? Cool, I got 40 hours. Okay, I'll see you next week, bad boss. Okay, cool. That's what we do. Why? Because we understand there's a relationship there. You're the boss, I'm the employee, and nothing's going to change that relationship. I may have an opinion of you. I may be looking for other jobs, but at no point am I just going to walk in tomorrow and tell you you're done being boss. I'll take on that drama. You just go, oh, man, that's really terrible. I'll look for another job. I'm on here. 40 hours next week? Okay, cool. I'll see you later. Right? That's what you do. Think about this scenario. Um, when you're in school, you're taking a class, right? And you work really hard, and you turn in this report, and your friend works really hard and turns on a, in a report. You get an A, your friend gets an F. You copied your friend on this report, right? You just copied it word for word, and you're like, man, that seems weird that because, you know, I'm, I have blonde hair and blue eyes, and I'm, you know, stunning looking, that my professor would give me an A, and my friend would, you know, give this friend an F, when especially since it's the same report we turned in, right? At no point, if that ever happened to you, would you be like, I am outraged. This professor grades unfairly. Tomorrow when he shows up, I'm going to be professor of this class, right? Professor shows up, you're like, hey, let's, it's time to go, pal. I'll teach economics now. Time for you to go. No, here's what you do. Oh, man, that's so terrible. Man, that's awful you got that grade. So when's our test? Is it next week? Because uh, I really need to get an A in this class, so I don't like you as a professor, but I'm going to continue in this class because you're the teacher and I'm a student, and I'm not questioning that relationship. Or put it this way, you guys have parents. I think most of us have some kind of parent relationship in there, right? And maybe you have siblings uh, or you know someone who does, and you have uh, almost certainly experienced times where you and all your siblings were doing something bad, and only like one of the siblings got caught, right? Like y'all are running around the house, and then you take off, you, you just know, I don't have to be fast, I just have to be faster than my slowest sibling, right? 
You turn the corner right as mom comes in, catches the last sibling, spanking goes on. Or if they're new age parents, timeout goes on, however that went in your family. I'm not judging you. I'm just trying to provide an accurate description of your household, okay? No judgment. Be cool, Anthem, right? So your sibling is spanked or in timeout or both or some combination of that. And you're from the side. At no point in that experience right there are you like, man, that was so terrible that they spanked him when we were all being disobedient. Tomorrow when my parents wake up, I'm going to tell them, you're done here. I'm going to be parents of the household. Time to go, parents. I'm in charge, right? At no point are you like, when my parents go to work tomorrow, I'm calling a roofing company, putting a new roof on, taking care of them. So when they get home, I sit them down and go, hey, listen, you're living under my roof now. So there's going <laughs> to there's gonna be some changes around here starting immediately, right? That doesn't happen. Here's what you do around the corner. You know this. You're like, man, that really stinks for my sibling. So mom and dad, what's for dinner? Like, uh, is that coming later on? Okay, cool, I'll see you later. Sorry for you, pal. And then you just go off to your room and you watch TV, right? At no point do you question the child-parent relationship. At no point are you trying to trade places with that. That doesn't happen. You respect it even though you may think your parents mishandle the application of discipline, right? But you still respect the relationship. But what goes on here and what Malachi says is God governs the way God governs, and when we don't like it, our hearts create an idol factory, and we go, God, this doesn't seem fair, so I'm checking out. Now I want to be God. I am not respecting the God-human relationship. I don't care that you created the universe and you put breath in my lungs. I want to be God of my life now, so bye. I'm out. Why do we do that? We do that because we're sinful. We do that because we're sinful. And here's something you need to understand, friends is that no matter how good of a person you are, no matter if you're saved here today and you're following Jesus, your heart is still corrupted. The core of your being is still corrupted. It's an idol factory, and it's looking for any reason to not follow God, to just reorder the relationship, to tell him, you don't want to be human and him be God. You want to just be the God of your life. There's, it's, it's, it's calibrated towards wanting to just jump and drive the, your life on your own and not sit in the passenger seat. And what Malachi is trying to warn us about is this very issue. And he says, just be aware of this. Be aware that you, are, you tend towards this kind of thing. And so I would just offer uh, this word to you, and it's this. Don't allow, don't allow unfairness to unplug you from your power source. Don't allow unfairness in your life to unplug you from your power source. God is your power source. And I know things seem unfair at times, but don't allow that, seemingly, uh, that seeming unfairness to just cause you to unplug from your power source. Because if you want to be a kind of person who really is about seeing justice come on earth and God move and restore relationships, you're not going to be able to do that in your own power. You're going to need the power source, and that's Jesus. And so I know it's hard sometimes to follow him when things seem unfair, but just you got to remember this. God is God. We're not. And he's the one who's sovereign over all these things, and we're not. And he has all the details and we don't. So I know sometimes it seems murky. The, the appropriate answer is not to turn on him and go, how have you loved me? When God says, I love you, our response must be something along the lines of this. Listen, God, it's, it, I love you too. It's really hard to love you right now because I don't see everything. <sighs> but I am resolved to the fact that you are God and I'm not, and I'm going to love you and I'm going to follow you anyway. So I, I need you to, sh to help me trust you more and more. Show me things I don't see, but I'll continue to follow you because you want to be plugged into that power source so that when he moves, you move with him. 
Don't let unfairness unplug you from your power source. Verse 4, now that Malachi has dealt with this. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. I need to explain something. I totally forgot this. There was this hypothetical situation of God loving Jacob and hating Esau. And I held that intention. I wanted to explain it to you a, a little bit later. Um, here's something you should understand about this. I don't think the explanation of this ultimately gets God off the hook from seeming unfair, but I think the explanation actually helps us understand. What I don't want you to do is walk away from this Bible study today thinking that God hates people, okay? Paul picks up this theme again in Romans 9, 10, 11, and he quotes Malachi here, and he sets forth uh, some theological uh, um, categories that sometimes get uh, get read or misread as being that God arbitrarily loves certain people called the elect, and he hates all these people arb arbitrarily called the reprobate, and it leads into these theological conversations that I don't necessarily think are always the most helpful. Um, but let me just clarify some things here. In Hebrew, Hebrew is an, it's an interesting language. Uh, one of the, the, the limitations of Hebrew is that there isn't an idiom of comparison. There is not an idiom of comparison, meaning you would never see in the, in the actual structure of the language Doug is better looking than Alec, right? You would never see that. If you wanted to say that Doug is, is, is better looking than Alec, like Alec is a 9, but Doug is a 10 out of 10, you would, you would never see it Hebrew going, well, Doug is better than Alec. What Hebrew does to help you understand comparison is it sets opposing ideas right next to each other. Doug is dashing, I mean, just dashingly good looking. Alec is ugly as all get out, right? You would just say that right there. Now, these are just hypothetical names. I'm not talking about any Doug or Alec in particular. I'm just saying, right? So Doug is good looking. Next sentence, Alec is ugly. And by putting those together, a Hebrew reader would go, oh, this is a comparison. What you're saying is Doug is better looking than Alec, right? And you see this over and over again. And that's what's going on here. Um, what, what, what this probably should be translated is, I have loved Jacob more than Esau. Um, and that's actually, that's actually not even the best rendering of it. It's something more like this. It has been easier for me to love Jacob than Esau. It has been easier for me to love Jacob than Esau. And it makes sense. It makes sense when you think about it. Jacob is this term that gets applied to Israel. Esau is this term that gets applied to the Edomites or to some extent maybe not Israel. So the people of God versus the non-people of God. So you can think people who love Jesus and people who don't love Jesus. And it makes sense. It is easy to love someone who loves you back, right? This is the people of God. It's easy to love people who love you back. It's very challenging to love people who don't love you back. And so what, what, God, what Malachi is saying here is, listen, I'm God, I've created everybody, and you should just understand, I love the people who love me back much more than the people who don't love me back, because it's easier to do so. And I think that's true of everyone. So I, I want to make sure just for where you're going, you understand that up front. Malachi is setting this up as the, the hypothetical scenario to get to the point to deal with fairness so that he can move forward in the text. So just in the for what it's worth category, there you go. Verse 4. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build. But I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. In other words, God is continuing to reinforce, hey, I'm God, you're humans, it doesn't matter what you do, you got, you got to understand I'm in charge of this whole thing. You just got to understand that. You're humans. I'm God. Nothing you do is going to change my plans. He's trying to reinforce that. Verse 5. 
your own eyes shall see, and this is the important verse, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Guys, there's two more things I want you guys to understand about this text. Number one, or number two of all these things. So the first was that anytime we think about fairness, we're really saying, I want to be God. Number two, that God is sovereign over all things, including this idea of fairness. God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign. He reigns. He's in charge. He created everything. He's the biggest kid on the block. He's actually not even a being like we are. He's another being who created the universe. He exists outside the universe. He's sovereign over all things. He just is, including this idea of fairness. And number three, which is closely related with it, is this. Fairness is a uniquely Christian idea. Fairness is a uniquely Christian idea. And I want to I bring these three things to mind as themes in Malachi that we're going to reinforce each week of the series. Uh, but I want to bring this last idea to bear just, just to say this briefly. Um, uh, fairness is not a concept that exists outside of the Bible. The idea of justice and mercy don't exist outside of Scripture. These are not pagan terms. The idea that there would be an absolute ruler who has absolute truth and will hold everyone to this absolute standard of truth is a uniquely Christian idea. And especially in the West, which is the, the, the cultural heritage that we pull a lot of our ideas from, um, Western culture is built on this idea of justice and fairness because it is a culture that is historically indebted to Christianity. And so fairness, even the idea of fairness, by asking that question, you are asking a Christian question. And I want you to keep that in mind because you cannot escape the reality that God is sovereign even over this question you're asking. The very question you're asking is reinforcing the idea that there is a God and you are not him, right? So, or to maybe tell it this story. Uh, there was a pastor friend of our executive pastor, Danny. And Danny brought him to one of our pastor's meetings. He's Canadian, so there's just a, a theme of Canadians here. Um, and we were talking to him, and he, had this, he has this really great mission in life where he tries to unlock what God has um, encoded in people's souls. He, he wants to unlock it and bring it about to show them that God's already at work in them. That's his whole mission in life. So on that note, he's at this uh, hockey practice, obviously, because he's Canadian. And um, uh, he's there. His kids are playing hockey. And uh, this mom is there, and her kids are playing hockey and she starts talking about this famous murder that was in Canada. And she says, man, it's just really not fair, the, the sense of injustice that goes on in the political system. And so, his little Holy Spirit sensor goes off and he turns to her and he goes, oh, ma'am, yeah, I understand that sense of justice. So what church are you a part of? And she goes, like, what? And I think he said, she said a cuss word. She was like, what? Like, I'm not part of any bleep church or whatever. And he's like, um, well, no, 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 you just talked about justice, and obviously that's a Christian term, and so that, that must mean you're a Christian. So tell me what church you're part of, or what kind of Christian uh, uh, place did you grow up in? And she was like, look, I'm telling you, I'm a pagan atheist. I'm not a Christian. You were sorely mistaken. He's like, no, 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 you don't have to lie to me anymore, right? You're obviously a Christian who loves Jesus, and you're born again. So tell me about where this came from, because justice, that very idea is a Christian term. The fact that you're using it means you're borrowing from these Christian categories. Obviously, you must have been raised in some kind of Christian environment. So tell me what church it is, because I'm a Christian, and I'm part of a church, and I want to be part of the same church you're a part of, because I also care about justice because of who Jesus is. And she's like, you're on crack, right? She's like, 
or whatever the Canadian version of crack is. I don't know. I've never been, like, in that scenario. So, so, so the, the lady is, like, weirded out and distancing herself. And he's like, no, 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 ma'am. Listen, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I read the Bible. I study it. And the Bible is all about justice. Jesus is all about justice and fairness. And so, man, if you haven't read this, it would really enhance your understanding of justice. She, he said, she just kind of looked at him and was like, this is weird. And she left. Well, so he's like, okay, I'm a weird Christian. So be it. Just throw another one on the pile here. We're just, this is just, you know, this is the life of a person who's living out the gospel and evangelizing. You know, he's watching hockey. Well, next week he's at the same practice and he sees this woman walking around the ice rink. If you've ever been to an ice rink in Canada or an ice rink in the U.S., there's like a track system around, around the ice. And to get anywhere, you have to walk around the track. So he says he sees this woman come in the door with these little minions, I'm guessing are her kids, and they start walking around the track and he can tell they're coming for her he's like moving and they keep coming he's like oh no i'm in trouble whatever and so she's pulling these kids by their overcoats and she pulls up and she goes sir 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 hey um you mentioned something about a bible last week and he was like yes we were talking about justice and how the bible can help enhance your understanding of justice since the bible is about justice and she goes yeah yeah yeah. can you get me one of those because my kids and i were talking about it i think we'd like to start reading that he said it was just this great moment. And I love that story because it illustrates something that's so true of all of us. You guys have friends who, who say all the time, this isn't fair, that isn't fair, this isn't fair. And maybe you are people who say this isn't fair, that isn't fair, this isn't fair. I, I want you to understand something. God is sovereign. He is not going to be undone by our latest existential crises. He has already built into the very fabric of our reality this, this sense and longing for justice. And he's done so not because he cares about justice ultimately, but because what he cares about is Jesus ultimately. And so God is not above using Jesus or using justice to help bring us to Jesus, right? And our friends who care about justice, that's a great evangelistic insight into their world. And so you can lean on justice as a way to get people back to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the author of justice because God created this whole thing. And so as we move forward, I want you to keep in mind the idea Uh, Just adjust and recalibrate your brains and your hearts to remembering this, that thinking about justice and thinking about fairness is not ultimately bad if you think about it in relationship to who God is. Because God wants to always keep in mind that he is God and you're not. And so these notions of justice get brought to him in a way that he can redeem them and empower them and use them to reach people for the gospel of Jesus Christ in Orlando and beyond. And in light of that, I want to invite you to, to respond now to the reading of God's word. And so if you're able, I want to I take a moment just to think about what we've read. I want to invite you to stand, sit, kneel, assume a posture of worship. And here's what we're going to do, which is our tradition. We're going to sing a response song together. And we're going to sing a song about God and his sovereignty. And so I want to invite you to think about the words and the lyrics and the songs. And I want to invite you to assume a posture of worship. Maybe during this response time, all you want to do is sing. That's great. I want to encourage you towards that. Maybe you, uh, in this time... You want to you respond by just thinking and meditating. I want to invite you to do that. But I also want to offer an opportunity for prayer. And so I'm going to invite our staff team to come down front. We'll have some girls. If girls want to receive prayer, we'll have some guys. If some guys want to receive prayer, I'll take off the headset so no one can hear you, what, what you say. Sometimes you come down front, you see me with the Brittany microphone on, microphone on, and you're like, oh, I'm not going to talk because then everyone will hear it. So I'll take that off. And so if you want to respond in prayer, if you want someone to just pray with you, if you're struggling with justice and fairness, we've got people down here to pray with you. Justin and the band are going to lead us. What's the song we're leading? How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which is just an appropriate song uh, to sing in light of the fact that God is sovereign over all things.